Hello and welcome to the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need. This is episode 167, where in a moment we offer up an introduction to retirement planning. That's in just a second, as I say, but please bear in mind, if you have a general financial query, you're in the right place because we have an enormous resource of free advice right here. And you can access it all simply through delving into our back catalogue of shows, because in our programmes to date, we've featured loads of stuff, mortgages, investing, wills and powers of attorney, and heaps more. You name it, we've done it pretty much. Last time we discussed the Chancellor's Autumn Statement. Find the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll get us there. Like I say, an enormous resource, all available for free. Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow the show. And then that way you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm Joe Ellis and deputising for Phil once again is colleague Andrew Schooler. Hi, Andrew. Hi, John. Thanks for having me along. Okay, retirement planning. Where do you start? Uh, yeah, not not to sound like Julie Andrews, but um, <laughs> <laughs> start at the beginning is a very good place to start. Mm. <laughs> so, so you know, retirement planning, as depressing as it sounds, should really start from day one of work. You know, I have even written reports on retirement planning from, you know, from birth Hmm. for grandparents looking to save money for their for, for their grandkids. The bottom line is the sooner you can get started with retirement planning, a the lower amount that you'll need to save on a regular basis and b the better retirement that you'll have. So so yeah, that it should be something that is brought in from the very first pay slip that you ever receive. Retirement planning should always be part of that. Okay, so here I am as a self-employed person, and I'm. Uh, this happens to me in every episode, by the way, when it's something that that features, you know, an element of my own life. So I'm sitting here now, and I'm thinking, well, I have been paying in since I started. Tick, and gradually over the course of the episode, you'll see me go <laughs> losing color in my face and sweat breaking out my brows. I realise, oh, I didn't tick that bit, and I didn't tick that bit. But let's see. Uh, that's that's my prediction anyway. Realistically, Andrew, how much money do you need? in your pension pot when you retire. Uh, yeah, and and not to be, again, suitably vague, but how long is a piece of string? So it, it depends on a number of factors. You'll see on social media lots of different companies saying, you need this, you need that. It depends on the standard of living that you're going to need and what your expenditure is going to be in retirement. Now, this is really difficult for somebody 40 years in the future to predict what they are going to need in retirement. So it, it is a it's, it's a constantly assessed scenario that we need to look at. So when I'm doing retirement planning for clients, a lot of the time they're kind of potentially halfway through their, their career. I like them to start to consider what their standard of living is just now, what it costs them just now to maintain their standard of living and how close do they want that standard of living to be in retirement. Now, bear in mind, you're probably not going to have the same expenditure as you do in retirement. Hopefully your mortgage will be repaid so you won't have that. You you know, cost of kids 
hopefully won't yeah, be there. Yeah, get rid of them. Yeah. yeah, I know. Drains on resources, <laughs> however you want to refer to them. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's all, all those kind of side of things to take into account. But, you know, you know, some people say you'll need £250,000 in a pension to maintain your standard of living. You'll need 500,000, you'll need a million pounds in a pension to maintain your standard of living. I did read not that long ago some figures around what people need to maintain their standard, you know, maintain a very basic standard of living. Mm, mm. And there was, there was a figure of around 13,000 pounds a year for a single person to have a basic standard of living. And I'm like, yeah, that's council tax covered and that's my electricity bill covered, mm. but, but what about everything else? And then it kind of ramped up £18,000 if you want to have holidays, £25,000 a year if you want to have a good standard of living going forward. So, you know, all of all of these things, so, you know, the way I look at it, the, the amount you need in a pension depends on where you want to be in that sliding scale. So if you want to be at the higher end, the £25,000 a year, you really want to be looking at, you know, um, £500,000 plus in, mm. in a pension to, to maintain that standard of living. That isn't taking into account your state pension as well. though. So, you know, purely if you want your workplace pension, private pension, etc., to give you around £25,000 a year, you should be £500,000 plus within there. Okay, I'm vaguely aware. Sorry, let, let me just go back a step here, actually, because is there an assumption? Is there the way that you spelled that out for me? It, it sounded like the assumption, as I did some rudimentary maths, was maybe that your retirement or your your pensionable years will last for say a maximum of twenty or you know round about there. Is there is there an industry average that is considered when you're working out these sums in terms of the age that you'll live to or the the, the amount of retirement that you'll have? Yeah, and 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 that's that's a really good question because again, it's how long is a piece of string. Yeah. If we knew how long somebody was going to live for, oh my goodness, my job would be so easy, so much easier. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, and then you come to the scenario that you want your last check to bounce. That, <laughs> that, that's that that's the ideal scenario. So you know, the, the industry average is you know uh, eighty three years old is the n- normal mortality age. You know, when we're you know doing cash flow modeling, and that's basically how realistic is an income strategy for a client from from a pension scheme. You know, we'll model up to the age of a hundred, but you know. There's there's statistics out now that you know that there are people alive that will be living to 135 years old. You know, so you know when you're planning for 83, but then they could live to 135. It it, it makes planning very very difficult. You know, it isn't just a a, a clean cut saying yeah you you know uh, we want your funds to last for X period of time and yeah. That's uh, so. One thing to bear in mind, you kind of brought it up there. And um, depending on how the pension is set up, there may be an element of growth involved in the underlying asset. So, you know, when you're saying the fund will last twenty years, well, if there's zero growth at all, then yeah, and we're, you're just taking money out mm. um, without any growth at all. But if it is invested, if it is managed, there should also be an element of growth involved there too. So there's not it's it's not a case of 
you contribute into your pension up until a certain point. At that point, it stops. And then you just, you know, all this money is sort of sitting in an account waiting for you to to withdraw it. It's not that. It's it's still constantly invested and it's still constantly making money potentially anyway. Yeah. And, and again, depending on the type of pension, the fine mm. benefit pension, you don't need to worry about because it's a guaranteed income for the rest of your life. Uh, defined contribution or a money purchase pension. Yeah, it will remain invested more than likely. Again, depending on the income strategy. And I think we're going to touch on that a little bit later on in the uh, in the podcast around how you, okay. how you take income from that. Okay, I, I'm aware that in in my lifetime, the, the age of retirement has risen. I seem to remember for a long time as a kid, it used to be 60, I think, for women and 65 for men, I think. Uh, although I'm ashamed to admit, I don't actually categorically know that it's now 65 for women and, and 68 for men. I think you can correct me on that one if I'm wrong, but is it likely to change again? I mean, what will people's retirement age be in the future? Okay, so... Everything is the same now for men and women. So the the okay. state pension age has been standardised because it was deemed to be age discrimination one way, but it also discriminated in another way. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. I don't really want to go down. But, okay. um, what it, is that age now then? It's, it's so we're, we're, we're looking at 66 now, 66, the state pension okay. age, moving to 67 in 2028, and then moving on to 68 further on down the line. For me, I, I'm 45 years old. My state pension age is going to be 68 years old. Will that change in the future? Yeah, who knows? It, it A lot of it comes down to mortality rates. So uh, uh, the big reason why state pension has increased is because people are living for longer. Yeah. So the uh, Department of Work and Pension, they then have to make a decision to say, well, okay, we're now potentially paying money out for longer. So we've got one of two options. The really unpopular one is making more contributions to your state pension. So increasing national insurance contributions or the less uh, unpopular option is increasing pension age. So they've chosen to to kind of go down that route, increase pension age so that it's kind of in line with what their actuaries say is going to be a realistic time frame to pay our pensions. Neither are particularly popular, are they? Let no, me, let's no, be honest. Not, not at all. And, you know, for a lot of public sector pensions, they've been affected by this as well. You know, their members that, you know, so when I speak about public sector, you know, NHS, teachers, fire brigade, uh, police, etc., council, they've had a very similar thing happen to their pensions where their normal pension age has had to increase because it's no longer financially viable for to give them that pension at 60 and still continue with the same contribution. So, yeah, it, it's yeah, it, it's been very interesting over the last week while. How does the, the state pension... See, I've always been self-employed, so I've, I've never really paid much attention to it, but how does the state pension work then, Andrew? Yeah, basically, the state pension, you make contributions through national insurance uh, if you're working. So self-employed, you're making national insurance contributions, not work and you know, employee, and you're making national insurance contributions. So as long as you've made national insurance contributions, it's a tick in the box to say, yes, you've made a contribution for this year. One thing that a lot of people get concerned about is people, I'm not just going to say women because men do this too, who have taken a career break to mm. bring up kids. 
So if they're not working, they're like, oh, hang on, I've like been out of work for 10 years, bringing up kids and, you know, being a good parent, that side of things, fine. I'm going to get absolutely hammered because I haven't made my national insurance contributions. Well, that isn't the case. If you've been in receipt of child benefits during that period of time, you will automatically have national insurance contributions paid for you. Likewise, benefits that means you're unable to work, you're still going to have contributions made, so you'll still get the state pension. At at the moment, you need 35 years of state pension, 35 years of contribution to get the full state pension. There can be a couple of reasons why you do not get state pension if you've been contracted out of national insurance contributions, X, Y, Z. But basically, you uh, once it's all calculated out, you get an index-linked income for the rest of your life paid weekly uh, into your bank account. Okay. I mentioned this briefly a moment ago. I mean, the thing here is we have to try and calculate our sums based on a lot of unknowns, but one of which is, of course, how long we're going to live. So how long are we actually catering for? I assume if you're being sensible, the reality is you try to plan to build in like a surplus just in case you're blessed with a few more years of life. But for, for common sense maths, the frame of reference, I think you said, was was 83, was it? Uh, yeah, 80, for, for between 83 and 85, yeah. Right. So that's that's what we're working with. There are various choices you can make in, in terms of the way your, your pension served up at retirement, aren't, aren't there? It depends on, as you said, your personal circumstances because – there's not a one-size-fits-all choice. So take us through a few of those options and what they actually mean, please, Andrew. Yeah, I'll, I'll look at the two main types of pensions they have out there. We'll try and keep this as brief as possible because I could speak about this for hours because it's my job that I do on a, on a daily basis. So Remember, I'll, our pensions are coming, Andrew, at some point. So I'll rein it in. I'll rein it in. So um, DB pension, defined benefit, final salary, however you want to refer to it, is a guaranteed income for the rest of your life. These are normally now only available through the public sector. So, you know, NHS, teachers, fire brigade, police, council, etc. Some firms still operate them, but they're very expensive. And a lot of companies have moved to DC pensions, which we'll come to in a second. DB pension, your main choices are, do I take a lump sum? Do I give up some of my pension to take a tax-free lump sum and reduce my income for the rest of my life? Or do I take the higher pension for the rest of my life with no tax-free lump sum? it's nice and straightforward you know that and there's no risk attached to to that either and no major risk attached to that the the income will be paid index linked for the rest of your life and if you live to 155 for example it will continue to pay out basically the fund will not run out unless there's serious issues with regards to pension. <laughs> you might notice you start having small accidents in places, you know, or, you know, a bullet hole goes through your window and just <laughs> narrowly misses. Yeah, well, watch out for the actuaries cutting your uh, brake lines. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so so that, that's, that's DB pensions, uh, gold-plated, brilliant pension schemes, not that common out with the public sector anymore. Vast majority of people out there will have what's known as DC pensions, defined contribution money purchase pension. Now, when we look at how you take income, there's three main strategies that you can go down with regards to income from a DC pension. There is first one, which is an annuity. It is again a guaranteed income for the rest of your life, where you give your annuity pension pot to an annuity provider 
based on your age, your health, etc., where you live comes into account as well. They then give you a, a income for the rest of your life. Now, risk with that is in the event of your death, that plan can die with you. So you could leave nothing for a spouse or partner. But there are hundreds of different ways you can set up an annuity. So that's option one. Option two, take it all out in one go. Taxman loves you if you do that, but it, it is an option. It's a very expensive way of getting hold of money, but it, it's an option. And option three is known as a drawdown pension, or to give it its full title, a flexible access drawdown pension. Again, lots of different ways that that can be set up. You've got complete flexibility over the income that you take. The risk with a drawdown pension is the plan can run out of money. Now, depending on how much you take out of the pension depends on how long it's going to last. And that is the, the biggest consideration factor if you're going down that route. But it offers a very flexible plan. In the event of your death, the benefits are paid to anyone you wish. It's not just spouse or partner. It can be kids. It can be charity. It can be a third party. So, you know, and you don't have to do one of those three you could do a combination of them all if you really wanted to and um, you know there are so many routes to go down at, at income and retirement so yeah it, it is an absolute minefield so speaking to somebody like ourselves around what the options are and really guiding you through that to make the best decision is really really important at retirement one of the things, and I think most people like this, I, I think probably, uh, I, I can't speak for you because I, I don't know, but I've owned, I've always been self-employed, but I've only ever worked, you know, the, this one career, this one job. One of the things that you might have to consider will possibly arise is if you've worked a few different jobs in your life and maybe have a few different pension funds knocking about as a result. And you may be thinking about throwing everything into one pot for sake of ease. So, you you know, you know how much is there or whatever. Should you consolidate your pensions if that's the case, Andrew? You know what? This is really interesting because this came up in the budget. We, did, we didn't speak about it on the uh, on the podcast, but it was something that Jeremy Hunt brought up uh, on uh, in the budget. He wants a pension, workplace pensions to be transferable between employers. So effectively, you did one to the next. Yeah, absolutely. You you change employers. So the way I'm reading it is the, the pension is attached to you rather than being attached okay. to the employer like it is just now. Now, how that will work and in reality, will it work remains to be seen. I think it's a fantastic idea because it gets away from that. You know, I, I see clients who've got four, five, six pension schemes with mm. all different providers and actually working out where you are and and what your what your financial position is and for retirement is really difficult. Also, there are charges on all of these pensions. I know we touched on uh, pension charging on a on a previous podcast, but all of these plans have charges attached to them. And a lot of providers, the more money that you have with them, the cheaper the charges are. So you could have seven or eight different plans, all with relatively high charges attached to them, where it could be combined into one pot and it could be a lot cheaper for you. So a lot cheaper means there's less going out and charges means there's greater growth going forward. And, and that can really add up. So so in theory, this may happen in the future, but we'll, we'll wait and see. At the moment, though, 
should you consider consolidating your pensions? Well, for me as an advisor, I have to be able to demonstrate that by consolidating the plans together is offering value. So it's putting the client in a better position than they are right now. That, that That's the bottom line. If I can't demonstrate that I'm going to put them in a better place, we you know there should be no recommendation to, to amalgamate it together because where they are at the moment is the best place for the money. If an advisor is just consolidating it for the sake of consolidating it, then the only person that's really benefiting from that is the advisor. So there has to be an assessment phase where they look at all the plans and then work out, is there going to be a better option? Um, One thing that you tend to find is investment strategies with workplace pensions tend to be really poor, as in you've never had any advice on how it's invested. You don't really know where the money is invested in. And if you want to make an amendment to the way it's invested, it's very difficult, as in there's very few choices available. So that can be another benefit for pulling pots together. Say, well, we're reducing charges. It's being managed. We know where money is. You know, we know how much you have so we can forward project and there's there's better investment choice. Now, I would never be recommending clients stop paying into their workplace pension. That should always remain. But any deferred pots or pots that are kind of no longer being paid into, yeah, there, there can be options there. Just going back to the, the, the Jeremy Hunt idea for, for a second, um, I, sounded, I sound vaguely surprised that Jeremy Hunt had this idea, but it seems eminently sensible, the idea of your pension following you around as, as someone who has a pension rather than you building up three or four or five or six or seven pensions. I take it if we did go down this route, the objections would be coming from the pension providers because they're going to lose out money as someone hops from one to the next. Yeah, potentially. So th- there, there's a few areas that, that there will be an issue. Like, how do you choose which provider to use? Mm. Um, you know, then it, what happens if you then move? And yeah, it, th- there's a lot of variables. So pension providers. So, the, you know, I, we're, we're jumping back to the previous podcast, but part of it was they were also going to open up new investment strategies for pension funds to invest in riskier investments for 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 their um for yeah. their potentially bigger returns is that the idea yeah, but yeah okay. I, I, absolutely again I, i'm a little bit cautious about that but we'll wait and see how it progresses but in theory if you can have a pension attached to the person then the person can make the choice to say well i want to go with aviva i want to go with royal london i want to go with standard life aberdeen um, etc so so in theory you say right this is a pension that i own you start paying into this and it's all nice and straightforward logistically for payroll for large companies that could be a nightmare yeah because then they've got multiple payments going all over the place and then trying to work out who's been paid who hasn't been paid nightmare but in theory it could work there was a similar incentive that was you know, try our, our similar um, objective a wee while ago, and that was the pension uh, dashboard, where you could go to an HMRC website, type in your national insurance number, and it'll tell you every single pension you've paid into, who they are, where they're with, and the value. And 
you know what, if we could do that, that would be amazing. That would make life so much easier for people who have lost pensions, tracing old pensions, that Wouldn't side it? of thing. Yeah. But it's never come to fruition. You know, the, there is a very watered-down version where you can type in your old employer and it'll tell you where your pension it would potentially be, but it's not giving you your information. So I think it's fantastic. And if it works, it'll be brilliant. But yeah, I, I, a lot I of hurdles. Going to see it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've got a private pension because I've always been self-employed, which means I receive like an annual statement and I always say something along the lines of, you're currently paying this per year. If you keep going on this basis, we expect your pension will be worth this much when you retire. And if that's the case, you can either take a lump sum and then this much per month uh, for as long as you survive or your pension fund lasts or whatever, or you can refuse a lump sum and, and take a higher amount per month on those same terms, something of that nature. I mean, I you know, could be slightly off, but is it a good idea to take lump sum or not? So it, it can be really useful for a lot of people to take a tax-free lump sum. Now, bear in mind other pension plots of, of this nature. So this is a, a, a defined contribution or a money purchase pension. It's known 25% of the value of the pension is tax-free. So if you have £100,000 in a pension, you can take a tax-free lump sum out of £25,000. Now, that can be really useful for a lot of people in that it can be used to help repay mortgages. It can be used to bolster cash savings you know it can be used for a lot of different reasons bear in mind though if you put a if you say no i don't want the tax-free lump sum and let's say you go down an annuity route which they would be quoting within their statements say you can get an annual income of x per annum that's speaking about an annuity that tax-free lump sum's gone. And effectively, you're converting that into a taxable income for the potentially taxable income for the rest of your life. So mm-hmm. again, it can be really useful. Some people would say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm actually comfortable with my level of savings that I've got just now. I have no foreseen uh, expenditure going forward. That um, I think I'm going to really eat into that. So you know what? I would rather have a higher income for the rest of my life and that may be useful for them. Some people will say, well, you know what? I'm happy with the lower level income, but you know what? The lump sum is going to be really useful for me. So, you know what? I'll take it just now. I'll spend it over however many years. You know, e- even some folk use it to help bridge the gap between them retiring and state pension kicking in. Loads mm. and loads of different options there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, or, I mean, it, it could be that you take the lump sum to help your kids you know, buy their first property or depending on their age, put through university or, or whatever, but but to help them out and you've just got that that tax uh free sum to hand that you can you can sort of hand out uh, as and as and how you like, I suppose. Can I just take the entire whack out, Andrew? Absolutely. It's known as an uncrystallized pension lump sum, to give it its technical term. And the tax man loves you if you do that. So mm-hmm. You know, let's use the scenario of £100,000. So let's say you have £100,000 in a pension. Yes, you can absolutely take the whole lot out in one go. You uh, will get £25,000 tax-free. £75,000 will then be assessed as an earned income in that current year. So depending on what your tax status is in that year, you could then see a big chunk of that, um, you know, half of it going in tax potentially so you know it it is something that you need to bear in mind should you do that with all of your pension 
again, you're setting yourself up for an issue if that is your only pensions. Some people do it with, so say, for example, you know, they have multiple pensions. They may do it with a small, one of their small pensions. They may say, right, I'm going to take all of that out. I'm going to pay the tax on the extra amount, but everything else I'm going to use for an annuity or a drawdown. Absolutely fine. But, you know, it is an option, but, you know, a lot of pension providers recommend you take independent financial advice before you go ahead and do that. If I reach retirement age, but I've still got a bit to go on my mortgage or uh, some outstanding debt, is it better to get rid of those before I do anything else? It gives a lot of people peace of mind um, to know that their property is owned outright. They don't have a mortgage or a debt hanging over them. And a lot of some can be really useful for that as well, because, you know, ideally you want to be kind of going into retirement without those debts hanging around your neck because you've still got to service them. So, a lot of it comes down to how much interest are you paying on the debt versus what you could get from an investment or a savings account return for, for the lump sum. So again, I'm receiving advice at that point in time is is, is important, you know. Um, but I, I would say try and get rid of everything that you can before you go into retirement. Whenever we chat pensions, and you've been doing it this episode as well, we talk about annuities and drawdown. Maybe you could sort of briefly recap what those are. And in your mind, is there is there one that's better than the other or does it depend upon the individual? Like I, I ask this and I, I sort of know where you're going to go instinctively with this anyway, but let's, <laughs> let's, let's see if we can uh, we can get somewhere on this one. So um, annuities and drawdowns are recapping and then maybe you could venture which is better depending on circumstances. Absolutely. Okay, so annuities. Now, Annuities have actually got quite interesting recently, um, and a lot of this is down to uh, bond yield and interest rates. Annuities, so basically what, what an annuity is, is you take your pension, you give it to an annuity provider based on your health, your age, your lifestyle choices, where you live, then will an actuary makes a decision to determine how much you're going to get for the rest of your life, income, uh, annual income for the rest of your life. The older you are, the worse health you're in, higher BMI, where you live, etc. you will find you end up getting a higher uh, annuity because the assumption is you won't live as long. Now, how an annuity can be set up, the maximum return, annual return you will see from an annuity is known as a, is a single life five-year guaranteed annuity so basically the annuity is guaranteed to pay out for at least five years after that if you die the money is gone with you and that's how an annuity provider makes money if you live to 125 you've made money on the annuity so you know the rates can vary dramatically but if again for easy maths we'll say the hundred thousand pound figure if you had a hundred thousand pounds to give to an annuity provider you can expect somewhere between six thousand and ten thousand pounds a year income from an annuity for the rest of your life now that's going to be level it doesn't go up in line with inflation for the rest of your life so that can be quite an interesting option for a lot of people because the return is actually quite good between six and ten percent depending on client circumstances now so 
when you start adding in variables like, well, okay, I want this to be a joint life annuity so that in the event of my death, 50% of the annuity gets paid out to my spouse or partner, that'll then potentially change or reduce the amount you get because they're assessing it against two people now. If you want the guarantee to be a longer period, so more than five years, it'll guarantee to pay out. So up to 30 years, I Again, it'll reduce the amount that you're getting uh, on an annual basis. If you want the plan to be index linked, so your income goes up in line with inflation every year, it will start out a lot lower. It'll start out significantly lower than a level plan will do. And it'll kind of meet, you know, in about 18 years time, roughly depending on what the rates are that are used. So loads and loads of options for annuities. And again, I could speak about annuities for hours on end, but definitely something that's worth looking at when it comes to retirement because it's a guaranteed income and it can give people a no-risk income for the rest of their lives. So that that's annuities. Sorry, just before you go into drawdown or, or anything else, you know when they say, uh, when you're saying that they assess your health, uh, where you live, all of that, I assume for an assessment of health in those circumstances, they're talking about prodding and and actually getting you to go in and do some sort of examination rather than just say, well, this person has never smoked. Or I, I assume that there's an examination involved, which puts a lot of people off these things. Not necessarily. It's not It's not quite as severe as as uh, life insurance or critical illness cover. Okay. Where, right. Yes, that, that very much is prodding and we want to get as much information so we can assess your risk before we're going to give you an insurance policy of £250,000, for example. So, Fair enough. Um, the questionnaires that we go through, we look at BMI, we look at any past medical history, we look at any drugs that are being taken, we look at tobacco use, we look at alcohol use, Mm. You know, and more often than not, they come back with a decision straight away. There's no right. further medical underwriting required to say, yeah, this is this. Is this. <laughs> and, you, and you can't uh, sort of throw in at that point and say, well, look, what if I take one bottle of wine out a week? That's There's no there's no bargaining chips here. That's just there, there's, there's the no benefit to you in doing that. And right. the, the only time people are 100 percent accurate with their health questionnaires is when you're doing an annuity because it's actually in their interest to declare uh, everything, you know. Yes, because you're going to higher money, yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But again, it depends on how it's set up. Because, uh, you know, I, I remember and there's also um, things known as impaired life annuity. So if somebody is ill, they can get a far higher annuity rate. And I remember looking at one for a client all, uh, quite a while back. And, you know, uh, he, he had cancer and he had X period of time to live. But he would have far higher income if we assessed it purely on his circumstances. But if we then took the partner's details into account to say, well, in the event of his death, we still want the, the annuity to pay out. You know, that benefit was gone because the annuity still had to pay out in the event of his death. So it's then assessed on the on the partner's details. So, yeah, it, it's... Yeah, it, it, it's complicated, but, you know, it, it's it, it's definitely worth looking at. Okay, I meandered there. Um, so it's, right. I'm assuming you're going to move on to Drawdown next. Drawdown, right? drawdown next, yeah. So uh, Flexible Access Drawdown, give it its full title. So this really came into play in 2015 with the Pension Freedom Act coming into play. 
drawdown pensions had always existed, but it was really, really limited to who could actually use a drawdown pension. You had to have quite a significant pension already in payment for at least a year before you could even consider drawdown. And that was pre-2015. 2015 came along, Pension Freedom Act came into play. It opened it up to anybody that wanted. So how how flexible access drawdown can be used in a few different ways. So it can give clients flexibility to alter the income that they take. So they may say, well, you know what? I'm retiring at 63 years old. I have three years until my state pension age. I want a higher income for those first three years because I'm retiring now and I know I'm going to get my state pension of £11,500 in three years' time. So I want a higher income for the first three years with a view to turn the income down when state pension kicks in. Fine. Drawdown is perfect for that because you can alter the income. Some clients will want to know that they are retaining access to the money. So they own the money. So a drawdown pension you own and it's your money, whereas an annuity, you said cheerio to the money, is gone. So one of the major benefits, again, over flexibility is in the event of your death, it can be payable to anybody you, you want through an expression of wish. This can be spouse partner, this can be kids, this can be a charity, this can be a third party if you want. So whatever the value of the drawdown pension at the time of your death then passes on to the surviving, to the beneficiaries of the plan. So, you know, the money remains invested. So it's treated in the same way as a pension is right now. Uh, so it can be invested in any way you want. That is a good thing or a bad thing, depends on how you look on it. You could see growth. You could see the value of the plan drop through poor performance of investments. So if a client is doing drawdown, it's, very, it's a very good idea that they have a financial advisor attached to it and it's being reviewed regularly. Now, the other downside to a drawdown pension is, if you took out uh, uh, income that is not sustainable by the growth of the funds, the plan will run out at some point in time. So when that will be, you know, depends on the amount you're taking out. So that's a risk. I have also had clients, though, that have used it to say, well, I only want this pension to last until my state pension kicks in. Because when my state pension kicks in, I'll have enough money to maintain my standard of living. I have £50,000 in my pension. I want to take £10,000 a year out until my state pension kicks in. Fine. And that's another really good option with a with a drawdown pension that allows that facility. But again, needs to be assessed. It's a really good idea to get advice on it. That sort of thing. So that, that's the two types, um, two main types, annuity, drawdown, um, lots of variations within both plans. Which one is the uh, best option? You know, and if anybody's playing the uh, catchphrase bingo, um, it <laughs> depends on your circumstances. There we go. <laughs> Everyone take a drink, right? No, um, absolutely, absolutely. No, I, I think most people, myself included, simply just sort of blunder on in life because it's so busy. And so long as we know we've got a pension coming, we assume it's all okay. But as you get closer to retirement, right, I'm 50 now and I'm, I'm thinking – about this now, even though I'll probably be working for a, a few years yet, touch wood. But you start to wonder around this time, what if I don't have enough when I reach that point? Other than keeping working, which is your own choice anyway, is there anything else that you can do? I mean, how, how late can you leave it before you have to seriously think about addressing your pension? Oh, that's, that's such a difficult one because 
you know, that there's a lot of statistics that state if you want to achieve a certain amount in your pension, the sooner you start paying into it, the easier, the less you'll have to contribute on a monthly basis to get there. The longer you leave it, the more and more and more it's a kind of curve. You know, this isn't a straight line. It gets exponentially higher. You know, how long you should leave it? You shouldn't think of it in that way. You should think of it as I need to look at it straight away. You know, and if you're thinking that saying, well, I need to get this assessed, you do need to get it assessed, you know, thinking about what's the last point in time I can do something to change it. It wouldn't be the way that I would recommend looking at it. Um, you know, I again, you know, keep them working, yeah, making contributions. Uh, upping your contributions can make a significant difference. So not just paying the base amount that your employer pays in, because, you know, 5% from your employer, 5% from yourself. Looking at, is it affordable? And is there tax benefits of you paying in more? Because for a lot of people, there's additional tax relief available on, on pension payments. So, you know, consider that as an option. Then you start to get into the more speculative options to make your pension grow, saying, well, should you be changing your investment strategy? Should you look at a higher risk investment strategy to potentially get greater growth over the time you've got left? There's risk, you know, there's risk attached with that option. So, you know, it's... If your funds are underperforming dramatically, then yes, absolutely. That can be a really good option to change the way funds are invested. But should you go into a very high risk investment strategy to try and eke out more growth, it's an option, but you're leaving yourself exposed to, you know, markets go up as well as down. And the more volatile a a fund is, you can see great growth, but the day before your retirement, it could drop by 20%. And how would you feel if that happens? So, yeah. Yeah. Now, you see, here's the thing. On last week's show, I think our, our guest expert, Adam Wolcombe, said, for, for most people, your pension is the second biggest asset you'll ever have. So you should really take an active interest in it, which sounds spot on, but also in that merit, if it's the second biggest asset you'll ever have, it makes sense to bring in an expert to help, doesn't it? And, and I'm assuming a financial advisor will be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um I would probably well obviously it depends on the on the the value of your house, but I would argue for a lot of people it's probably their biggest asset that that they'll that they'll have because that'll give them their income for the rest of their life in retirement. Um, but yeah, absolutely, having a financial advisor involved is really important. It takes the guesswork out of what's going on. The great thing about a financial advisor, there is no emotional attachment to that money for the financial advisor, so they can be brutally honest with you. And it takes the it takes the emotion away from like for example you making the decision yourself. Say well, oh if I do this, what's going to happen? If I do that, what's going to happen? Financial advisor can say well it's not my money, so I can be brutally honest with you and say if you do this, this is what's going to happen, and then they can make help make decisions for you on that basis. So you know I I find a lot of my clients find that really useful. It, it, it takes the emotion out of decision making. Mm. Now, Phil's really keen on trying to help you with your query. So if you do want to email a question to us, please go ahead and do that. As always, we can ask him anonymously if you prefer. Let's get on to this week's. I have a funny feeling that I've actually helped this first one out inadvertently um, slightly slightly earlier in today's uh, podcast. But let's see. Contact details uh, for all of this coming up. I'll give it to you after this. This is from Colin in Elgin. Colin says, hi, Phil. 
Really enjoyed uh, the previous episode with Adam Walcombe. During that show, he talked a bit about pensions and how if you're under 50 and working for a while yet, there are various things you can do to improve your pension funds. Unfortunately, I find myself in the over 50 category. And because of the way the conversation flowed, he didn't actually get around to mentioning that bit. So assuming I might not have enough at retirement age, what options are open to me as a 50-something? And we, we, kind of, we kind of touched on that a moment or two ago. Is there anything you want to add to that, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the if somebody's concerned about their pension, there's a lot of options. So what I find with a lot of people is they will save into a pension, they'll save into an ISA, they'll save into a savings account. And that's fine because they've just that's what they've done. The amount you can pay into a pension each tax year and receive tax relief is actually very generous. So what I mean by that is if you pay £100 into a pension, you'll automatically get tax relief at source uh, of 20%. So that £100 turns into £125, which is great. So there can be a way... If we rejig clients' savings plans, so say they've got money in a, a savings account that's doing absolutely nothing, you know, savings accounts are a little bit better than they were before, but let's say it's doing nothing. You could then say, well, you know what, I don't think I'm going to need £10,000 of that money. I've got sufficient allowance in the current tax year to pay that into a pension. So that £10,000 comes out of your savings account. It goes into a pension. Straight away, it turns into £12,500. So you've got growth on the money straight away. It's helping go towards that getting to the overall figure that you want to get to on your your pension uh, amount. But also, if you're a higher rate taxpayer, you can claim additional tax relief on that contribution uh, through self-assessment tax return. So you, you know, you know, a, a, a lump of money that's sitting in a savings account doing nothing that you have no need for could be better off in a pension, get tax relief, potentially further tax relief as well, as well as the growth of the pension. So there are options, and a lot of people, you know, just rejigging their savings plans can have a can have a massive impact on their on their pension planning. So it's not too late, not at all. You know, there there's always options to to look at that column. Okay. Uh, next up, here's one from Maya who says, "Hi Phil, been saving for a deposit at home for a few years now, and we have about ten thousand squirrelled away, but we figure we'll need at least double that." Is there anything we can maybe do to fast track the process? Our savings are currently in the bank account with the best rate of interest we could find. Yeah, th- this is this is a really difficult one because we're kind of coming back to one of the points we made earlier on around risk. So, you know, fast tracking it. Now, you know, if the help to buy ISA was still available, yes, you could put money in a help to buy ISA, you would get contributions from the government they no longer exist unfortunately so your choice is um you pay more in to fast track that you look at cutting down in other areas you look at making sure you're getting the best deal in your insurances etc you're not paying out money that you don't need to for multiple products that are covering different areas or covering the same area if you're then looking for a uh, fast tracking that through greater growth there's risk attached to that. So 
whether you're looking at an investment strategy that's going to give you a better return than a cash-based savings account, that investment can go up at a greater rate. It can also come down. So again, it comes back to that whole capacity for loss. So if this plan does go down in value by 20%, how is that going to make you feel? How is that going to affect your long-term plans? You know, I've even heard people saying, well, I'm going to put it all in Bitcoin. Yeah, great. Go for it. Um, <laughs> so let's see where you are in a few years' time. Yeah. But not that that's my financial advice, put it into Bitcoin. But, you know, you're going into a highly speculative where, yes, I absolutely could double in value over the course of a two-year period. Brilliant. But it could also go down in value by 70% over the same period of time. So that £10,000 could be worth... £3,000 in two years' time, how is that going to impact you being able to buy your property going forward? So, yeah, it, it it's, you know, do all the low-hanging fruit stuff first, pay in the maximum you can, look at reducing your expenditure as much as you can, that side of things, great, before you start looking at the speculative side of things. Would you say as well, before you get in touch with a question, you might want to take a look at our back catalogue because we've covered a lot of topics so far. And we may have touched on what you're interested in. I'm John Ellis. Thanks for joining us for episode 167 of the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson. And to Andrew, once again, for deputising for Phil. If you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been discussing or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for finance. Search Phil Anderson Financial Services online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Or why not email Phil a question you can answer on a future show. His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send up your question. And like I say, Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast. And please be assured, we won't use your real name if that's what you prefer. Remember, if you found this useful, please rate and recommend us. And please follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.